0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Brian Washington. I am so happy to see you. I love Memorial. It was a Discover pick back in 2020 when it was first published in hardcover. Family Meal is here. And I have so many questions, and we're going to cover so much ground. But most importantly, hi. It's really great to see you.
1: Likewise, yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a big joy for me.
0: So memorial. And I know I said this to you every single time I see you, and you are probably tired of hearing this, and I totally respect that. But as a person with a Japanese mama, Mitsuko, our Japanese mama in Memorial, is one of my favorite pieces of that novel. I just, I love her so much. And I don't get Mitsuko in Family Meal, but you give me a whole new cast of folks. You give me Cam and TJ and May and Jin and, oh no, Brie. I can't leave out Brie. I love Brie. This wonderful, wonderful cast. And, you know, Memorial, I think you've also said this before, famously started as a short story and it only had Benson's point of view. And obviously it became Benson and Mike and Mitsuko and some other folks. How did we get Family Meal? When did you start? Working on this.
1: That's interesting because it was a similar situation, right? It was directly analogous to the memorial in that it started directly from a short story. But I was working on a project that I knew would have something to do with a bakery, although I wasn't entirely sure how sustainable that would be because I also wanted to write about friendship and probably more specifically queer friendship. And that project began with Cam and TJ. I knew to some degree, you know, that both of those voices would be necessary if I wanted to write about the friendship between two people having both or ample space for both parties felt as if though it made a sort of sense. I kept running into a wall where there was a emotional plateau that kept hitting something that's really important to me when I'm writing about characters that are from marginalized communities or underrepresented communities is not to lean into tragedy not to lean into trauma because so often that is the only light primary net light at which these characters are seen and I extremely did not want to do that but I also found that it was challenging to tell this particular story about two friends who are trying to figure out how to make a friendship work, but also just right. how to make their respective lives and situations work with one another as they've changed over time without alluding to the challenges of the times in which they were living. and. When I introduced Kai as a voice, or more specifically as a present tense, that's when the entire feel of the novel began to shift. began to feel more honest going forward.
0: Okay, I get that. I get that honesty piece. Luis Alberto Urea describes you as a one-man border eradication crew. And I love this because when I'm reading your work... I get everyone. I get the world. It's not just this tiny corner. And it's partially Houston. And I've only been to Houston a couple of times. I like what you guys are doing there. It's really interesting and fun and smart, but you're also wrestling with a lot of the same things we are on the coast, gentrification and opportunity and queer spaces and what those mean and family, of course. I mean, family, it doesn't matter where you are. But can we talk about how Houston informs Family Meal as well, because it's Houston is Houston and Osaka are both characters, obviously in Memorial, but Houston, we're grounded in Houston in a way with a little side bit to Los Angeles and a bit of New Orleans. But Houston is a much bigger presence actually in this book than it is in Memorial. I felt at least.
1: Yeah, that tracks for me as well. in what it felt interesting to me and what feels interesting to me is the way in which a neighborhood can change right like the physical characteristics of that neighborhood can change the business that you frequented for 20 years can disappear the taqueria where everyone was really nice can dissolve overnight but the emotional landscape is a little bit harder to disappear right you still feel at least an iteration of things that had occupied you or preoccupied you in a given space. And there's a neighborhood in Houston, Montrose, it is the city's canonical neighborhood, more or less. And there are a number of significant changes that have occurred in that place over time, in that space over time, largely by way of money, largely by way of development. But, In either case, the physical landscape of that neighborhood has changed, but also the less tangible bits, which is to say who you literally see occupying these spaces, who feels welcome in these particular spaces, even though the neighborhood is brandished and is lauded as being a queer space, the question of who is allowed to occupy that space became one that was of... Paramount importance to me, particularly as we were entering a phase of the pandemic where folks were like out and about and again and comfortable being around one another. The discrepancies of which demographics were able or felt comfortable in these spaces were really loud. And even, you know, in a city like Houston that is deeply diverse, so much of Family Meal is me working through the question how queer spaces can change. You can feel welcome in a space that laws itself as queer and how we ourselves are changed by way of spending time in these spaces. And I'm thinking predominantly of queer spaces and family meal, but I imagine that's something that is shared by most anyone. If you have a place that made you feel joy or if you had a place that made you feel quite challenged or if you have a place experience first love or you have a place where you experience betrayal and so on like that emotion stays with you in that space even as you change you know so seeing the way in which that push and pull impacted each of these characters as they navigate their own relationships felt really important to me and it also felt as if though houston was the city that i wanted to try and pull that off of
0: i'm thinking of actually colson whitehead's colossus of new york listening to you talk about Houston, right? Like it's, it's his map of how New York has changed. And I've been back in the city for more than a minute now and the changes I've seen and that I was here as a kid and then coming back, it's been wild. And also watching Los Angeles change in sort of the last 20 years has been, there's a sense of loss that I wasn't, necessarily expecting and I don't know how much of that is age and how much of that is watching the shifts right like Mm. there's some really great changes that have happened in Los Angeles and there's some where I'm just like what is we are barbarians what is going on here and it does have to do with money it has to do with housing it has to do with all of the messy pieces That no one right now seems to have a very good answer for. Okay, let's take the evolution of the East Village in New York for a second. Like, It used to be Alphabet City. It used to be a very different place. And now, you know, it's more touristy than it was, but not as touristy as maybe the West Village. It's wild watching the evolution of downtown New York. But for me, when I'm reading your sort of emotional map of Houston... I bounce back and forth between thinking your characters want to be there without a doubt and thinking, oh no, they really want to leave and they haven't figured it out yet. And I'm wondering if that isn't just part of the the narrative tension, right? Like, But is that also part of you?
1: It's absolutely part of me. You know, I mean, I think that I'm someone who has a deep love for Houston, like a deep love for the city, but it is not a love without ambiguities, and then it's not a love without challenges, and it's not a love without a cognizance of the many different ways that the city can just be really tough for folks, right? And this is even before getting into like the Texas of it all. Right, right. I think that while I was writing Family Meal, in quite a lot of ways, Cam felt like a character who was looking for a home. And TJ, at the outset, at least felt like a character who was looking to leave home. And it was interesting to me to take the same place, the city mm-hmm. of Houston, and to make a map of it across the narrative, sure, but also to make a map of it across each of these characters' respective, emotional arcs. T is ultimately someone who is comfortable where he is, and to or is pushed by Cam is pushed by the many different folks that mm-hmm. are in his ecosystem of relationships to find it in himself, to really ask, like, what do I want? Cam is asking similar questions but through and from like a different visage, right? So to have these characters that are quite different from one another asking the same questions and attempting to tell a story in a way that just me generally like in a narrative I'm not particularly interested in Answers, like that doesn't really matter to me. Like, I don't, I don't need a solution. I don't need a conclusion. Like, I don't care about that. Um, but I am interested in questions and I am interested in questions that create more questions because that feels like a conversation. And I'm of the mind that family meal from draft to draft, it's an evolution of questions of what does it mean to be a friend? Or what can it mean to be a friend? What can a family look like? What can a family in flux look like? What can kind a of friendship in flux look like? How do these things impact our senses of who we are? Who are we when we don't have like a defined map of how to be or who we're told to be? If someone important in our life with whom we've come to define ourselves alongside of, if they're no longer there in one capacity or another then where does that put us what questions and what changes are we ourselves forced to make in order to fill that void if we so choose to fill that void or do we create space and allow for new and more possibilities none of these questions have static answers but i think Mm -hmm. these are all questions that each of us have and, uh, and that's interesting to me. That feels like a narrative that I want to spend time with.
0: Memorial was an incredibly assured book. Family Meal actually feels slightly more mature in a way. Your approach to the city feels a little more mature. There's a little more room for ambiguity. I, I'm just I'm thinking of TJ and Ian for a minute. Ian may have driven me around the bend a couple of times. But dude's got to find his way, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I get it. Dude's got to find his way. Yeah, Family Meal feels more grounded in the discomfort. And it's not to say that there isn't joy in this book. That uh, There's a lot of joy in this book. But I thought it was kind of fascinating that Cam certainly and TJ certainly. I'm just going to focus on them for the moment because I there's something I'm obviously trying to stay away from. You do a really beautiful thing in this book where, you know, I had moments as a reader where I was really uncomfortable, but I trust you enough to know that if I keep going, right, like the payoff is going to come, like whether it's hope or relief or even just a laugh. You walk this high wire on every single page of Family Meal. And I really respect that as a reader because it's hard to do. Really hard to do. So when you're mapping out a novel like this with all of its complexities and all of its characters and all of its fam let's call it family stuff for the moment, right? You started with Cam and TJ, but how do you move through a draft of this manuscript and this story?
1: It's interesting that you say that about discomfort because I hesitate Mm -hmm. to meet anyone, friend, acquaintance, stranger, someone, whoever, who has been deeply comfortable over the course of the last few years in an uninterrupted way. I think that, for me, a part of what makes writing interesting, a part of what makes narrative interesting, because for one thing, I'm more of a reader than a writer. I would always rather. Be reading, so it actually takes quite okay. a lot to get me to sit down with a project and write it myself. If I'm writing something myself. It's because I would like to read something, and I do not see that iteration of that thing there. But a part of what mm-hmm. makes or what made this particular project both deeply challenging, also held my interest to write over the course of you know two and a half years or so, was that with each book, to some extent, I'm interested in testing the bounds of like what I can do or what I feel that I can do and put on the page and stretching that a bit. It looked a certain way for a lot that looked a certain way for Memorial. So that by the end of my writing that book, I felt as if, oh, okay, like I have done an iteration of the things that I think I can do at the level. That I think that the story necessitates. but for family meal, the wall that I kept running into and in the initial drafts of this narrative about friendship, of this narrative about how our senses of family can change and our senses of comfort can change, our senses of what it can be to be okay can change, was that I was deeply reluctant myself as uncomfortable as the last few years had felt to lean into that discomfort or to even acknowledge that Mm -hmm. discomfort to some extent for fear of those challenges, whether they were structural challenges, whether they were challenges permeated by the state, whether they Mm -hmm. were emotional challenges overrode Mm -hmm. the questions of community and of friendship and of hope and of possibility for these characters. Mm -hmm. I think the turning point for me was realizing that that Venn diagram is, you know, a circle in and of itself, right? Like all of these things make up our experiences on a daily basis. In some ways, the challenges really exacerbate. The moments that we do feel euphoria or we do feel joy or give us something to lean toward as far as like possibility and hope is in our concern so for family neil much of the traffic i was just like how much can i fit into yeah. you know like can i continue to fit more things yeah. into to this right and As I drafted, I would watch it expand the scope of experience and it felt as if though there was room for more. So I added more and I kept adding more and then I kept adding more. And then the honing of the narrative took place and the shape began Mm -hmm. to change from a literal narrative standpoint, but it also began to feel more honest. And it also began to feel as if though it were closer to the experiences that I've had, the experiences that my friends have had, the questions and the conversations that we were interested in having. And that's not a fun place to write from, I won't say. This is certainly the long-term project that I've had the least fun writing. But I really felt and feel as if though I told a story that I wanted to to the maximal effect that I could at that time, which is always the goal.
0: I felt like I was reading something really fresh and new. You just said this earlier in the taping where you were talking about writing the thing that you just didn't experience, right? And you wanted that thing. And so you wrote it. You put Cam through some stuff and TJ to an extent as well, but Cam really has an arc that I haven't really seen in a while in fiction. I mean, he's got some stuff going on with food and booze and pills, and readers will find out where that all kind of stems from. But it was interesting to see that in a really modern narrative. And TJ also, like, his arc, slightly different from Kim's, but same thing. It's like, huh you're not going to make it easy for either of these guys. But seeing TJ figure out who he wants to be with, right? And here's this younger kid. Well, I mean, he's in his 20s, but it's not a storyline that a kid like him always gets, right? And so I kept being surprised by both of them. And then you bring in, you know, parents and friends and siblings and i'm still mad at fern's cousin but that's a whole nother story she didn't have to do that you know how much money do you need but seeing how all of it comes together and how much similarity there is to a certain extent but cam and tj can't see it as i'm reading family meal i'm doing sort of the mental math on the craft right right because you never get heavy handed and you're covering some like grief and identity and, you know, what a mature relationship may or may not look like. It's like, what do you have to get out of your system? Right. Like, I am deeply grateful apps were not around when I was younger. Like, I can't even imagine the horror of the apps. But watching these two kids figure out, and again, by kids, I mean these guys in their 20s, but they seem really young in ways that actually Mike and Benson didn't? I don't know. And is that because Mike and Benson were a couple living together, even though things were not going well? I don't know. How do you feel about sort of where these sets of characters fit on a a Brian Washington continuum?
1: In some ways, I would hope that if a reader who had spent time with Memorial also spends time with family meal sees or maps, the respective protagonists in relation to one another, family meals feel more complex or there is an additional layer of complexity. I do think that with Memorial, it felt important to me to allude to some of the challenges that each of the characters facing individually, which is, say, Mike and Benson, whether it is racism in dating, whether it is body image challenges, whether it's mental health challenges, or it's just the challenge of being, you know, a queer person of color uh, in the world. Right. But I was really reticent with Memorial to lean too much into those challenges largely because I didn't want them to supersede the story I was telling, those challenges superseding the narrative of itself. But also I think I've just gotten better at my job with Family Meals so that I'm more comfortable Or I'm finding that the risk for me of not including those challenges is not as high as the risk of telling a dishonest narrative or wasting a reader's time and only alluding to the brightness or leaning really far into the light at the expense of challenges that just do exist for a lot of folks in these communities so i think that cam and tj in many different ways are juggling challenges whether it's mental health challenges whether it is relationship challenges, whether it is socioeconomic challenges, Mm -hmm. whether it is structural challenges in the way that they do, because that's just the way that it feels right now, you know, but even in the midst of that, I'm always of the mind that at least in my work, at least in, you know, the projects that I want to spend Time with, I don't know that there needs to be a positive outcome for every character in mm-hmm. a narrative and family meal. There certainly isn't, but allowing for the promise of possibility, not only the promise of possibility necessarily, but allowing each character the benefit of the doubt and the ability to change their minds and the ability to chart a new path if they want to or the ability to come back into the fold if they want to or just out if they want to like that's the sort of narrative that i'm most amenable toward because that in a lot of ways feels true too i mean there's so many texts that i've read where that promise of possibility or that promise of hope whether implied or explicit changed my own life you know it had a tangible and a palpable impact not only on the story but also on myself so Mm -hmm. writing family meal with that in mind gave me a tangible goal so to speak in the midst of writing a project for which the models and the comps were like a little bit more anomalous for me but it also gave me something to write toward even if i didn't necessarily know exactly what that would look like for each of the characters
0: i mean for me as a reader i wanted to be in this world mostly because i was worried about cam a slightly less worried about tj only because i felt like he had a little maybe he didn't make all the best decisions but he had a little more grounded because he has mom and the business and he has Pam is a little more on board, and I was slightly worried in a way that I didn't feel like I had to be worried for TJ, but I was invested in both of them. And I was invested in wanting to know that someone might be okay. Isn't the same thing as wanting to read a happy story where, you know, things are going right. Like wanting someone to like, we all meet people in our lives, you know, actual off the page people, right. Where you want them to be okay, but mm, you don't, know if it's going to happen or not and really it's out of your hands like everyone's an adult here right there's this expectation that i think some readers have where it's like either you have to have nothing but trauma i wanted to watch these two guys figure out where they might go next and it wasn't a clean it's not like a dotted line and they're just going do 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 following the little steps right i want to sit in a room with them i want to sit at the table with them i don't necessarily need to be in a car with them Um, and i say that respectfully but you understand what i mean like there are times where it felt very sort of oh you should have a moment because you can really write my friend i really appreciate in family meal that i'm sitting with these really vibrant like way lively characters that is not phrased well but you understand what i'm trying to say like This world is pulsing with life and with a point of view, and everyone is a distinct entity. And I just, I have some love for Brie, Kai's sister Brie. I have some love for that woman. (laughs) And I was not expecting her to pop back in the way she did, and I'm very happy that you did that. And how much of that is you letting everyone sort of have their turn driving the story? as it were, versus this is where we are. I mean, I get that you're wrestling with these big ideas of time and place and belonging and, you know, who gets erased and who doesn't. But these characters are amazing. As messy as they are, they're really amazing. I really love them a lot. I don't think you could deliver a book like this if you didn't love them, too.
1: I think it would be challenging, too. But uh-huh. right. okay. when... I was working on the novel and, you know, particularly when I was starting Family Meal, the characters were more akin to types than actual people, which is to say that I was hesitant to allow room for that messiness. And I was hesitant to allow space for characters to make mistakes or more aptly to make the sort of mistakes that in the U.S. at this time, it can be quite difficult uh, to find your way back from. Yes. I found myself eventually asking why I felt so hesitant to do that because these things were too close to life as it's actually lived because this would make for a narrative that on the writing end at least would feel unwieldy unwieldy because i didn't know where it ultimately would go and with those questions in mind i found myself (laughs) noting that you know that's more often than not the sort of book that i want to read you know the narrative does feel so it is akin to actually maybe having happened to someone the narrative does feel as if though i don't know where it's gonna go i don't know what these people are gonna do i just hope it works out for them right like i feel so strongly for them that i hope (laughs) that they're able to find a way to make things work out, even if I don't know that they will. That's the level Mm -hmm. of investment that I really hold dear with any text that I'm reading. Mm -hmm. And it became important to me eventually to try and map that for these characters, and particularly characters who were thinking of Cam, TJ, Kai and Noel specifically that didn't and don't have concrete, palpable, not models at arm's length for who to be or how to be. Something that you know I talk with my friends like a good deal about, particularly the queer ones. Is a way in which like a lot of our models that like we have access to for what does or can it look like to be us in our late 30s or early 40s or early 50s or early 60s and so on like what does that look like like can we see it can we see that trajectory like quite a lot of us don't and can't for a multitude right. of reasons but the question still remains for us right like what does that look like what can it look like Uh, Even if you don't have a model for it, um, that doesn't excuse the fact that, you know, you're in that situation yourself. And that was the situation that so many of these characters were. And so it felt like a really unique challenge for me, at least, the ability to, like, superimpose a lot of the questions that are immediate for me and the folks I care about and the communities that I care about onto these characters and to see where it led them, mm-hmm. right, to see where it would ultimately take them, because I didn't know, but probably crucially, at least for me on the writing end, like, I actively wanted to find out, like, I wanted to find yeah. out, and I found that when and if I'm able to translate that want that desire of wanting to see like how something is going to end onto the page then it's much easier i think for like a reader to also Mm -hmm. have that want and that desire and for those reasons you know it was again like a, a challenging book to write but one that I still wanted to sit down and see the answers to even in moments and even in editing portions where characters are really going through it, where Cam is having a deeply challenging time, where TJ has many questions that have blurry answers. If the answers are present for him at all in moments when Kai is volleying between what possibilities he thinks he has in his life and certain realities that really lay themselves clear for him that he has control over some others that he doesn't even you know as i was juggling you know that i still wanted to see how it would turn out and that i think and i would hope is something that you know the books that i most hold dear is also present for those authors
0: yeah. Can we talk about some of those books for a second? Because I'm also getting dangerously close to blurting out something that happens between two characters that made me very happy. And I'm just going to say it was a moment between Noel and TJ where they're talking about vaguely the future. And I just, I really loved that snappy exchange between them. I'm mm-hmm. like, yes, please more realness, right? More of this, like, we don't know. it. Yeah, you did a really nice thing with the dialogue. So I'm not giving anything away. It's just a really nice moment. But I do want to talk about literary influences because I feel like you have a really clear voice. I've read all of your books and you have a very, very clear voice to me. But I do think you pull influences from many, many places. And I I just want to hit some of those.
1: You mentioned it a little bit earlier. Another Brooklyn by Jacqueline Wilson is and was really important to me. As I was writing this particular book, Sigrid's, uh her work is and was really important to me. Banani Yoshimoto, like she, like, it changed my life.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: you know that book and her work more generally, like, are yeah. extremely important to me. The work of Jasmine Ward is yeah. really important to me. The work of and I, I read it a, a little bit later in the the drafting process uh, of uh Young park uh, a book called love oh, in the yeah. beginning that felt really crucial to me to read in the midst of writing this particular book but also just as a person it was a moment where i thought wow like someone is being honest on the page right and transferred really masterfully by anton Her into English uh, from Korean mm-hmm. original, but you know, it was a text where I was like, "Wow, like you can, you know, be honest on the page about challenges that queer folks have about the ways in which just like being a person can be really challenging." Brontes um, with a hundred boyfriends.
0: Oh, that. I'm so oh, looking yeah. to the new book. It's I, good. I had it, yeah, it's so I, great.
1: I don't have it <laughs> yeah. yet. Oh, oh really? I, sh-
0: uh, I should actually, no, you know what? I need to just nag his editor and cool. have it sent to me, but I'm really looking forward to reading that.
1: Yeah, yeah no, that's, a, that's a great book. I mean, another, another author, um, Samantha Irby, the way in which she's able to juggle levity with mm-hmm. reality, mm-hmm. so that it just feels as if though... You're with a person. It is, I think, just such a difficult and a high bar to manifest alone. Scale the work of Ruman Alam is really important to me. The work of Mary H.K. K Choi was really important. Mm -hmm. Yoke was really important to me. And and as I was thinking through the ordinance of particular project, I mean, there is. I think insofar as there is a line that can be drawn of continuity Mm -hmm. and of you know the larger continuum of books that, you know, made Family Meal possible, it's that there's the feeling of a deep care for the characters the authors are writing about, the choices that they're making. There's a feeling it seems of a deep care for giving them the benefit of the doubt and the ability to have decisions and futures that are malleable in the same way that you know i feel each of us every day we're making decisions that are not set it's like an active thing that Mm -hmm. we're doing like i love a book that does that and because you know any book is made up of the map of books that have influenced it and inspired it and created yeah. like a lexicon and the language uh, for it. I felt really lucky to have spent time uh, with those books as mm-hmm. was, uh, on the novel.
0: It feels like a solar system to me as you're describing mm-hmm. it. I know we bounce back and forth between using map obviously as a sort of reference point for all of the influences that a writer pulls in. but it really feels like a solar system because I know sort of where these writers and these books kind of fit having read your work like I can see, you know, some are a little more foregrounded. I've always been quite fond of Banana Yoshimoto, so I'm delighted. You know, whenever you mention her, I get really excited that she's been able to... I mean, you're a kid from Houston.
1: Can you imagine?
0: <laughs> I mean, and I'm just like, rock on, because, I mean... Because it's like, what the heck?
1: I think about that, like, really often, you know? And and
0: This is the same hair from the cover, but if you haven't seen Kitchen, like, yes, this is the haircut. I just, like, own <laughs> I- yeah, it.
1: Yeah, it's... It, I don't know. I think that that... You know, it's it's one of like the really lovely and unpredictable and joyous, which I use, you know, not haphazardly things about like fiction itself is like, you don't know, like who's going to read it. You don't know where it's going to go or like what it's going to do. I mean, so many of the authors whose works have impact, tangibly impacted my Mm -hmm. life, not only at like a literary level, but just like at a trajectory level as far as decisions that i have made absolutely we're not thinking about me when they were writing it. And yet, so that, you know, is, is, is really nice. and makes for a really warm feeling.
0: But for me too, I mean, I read so I can connect, right? Like I don't necessarily want to read the experience. I years ago or a couple of years ago, I interviewed Ruth Ozeki and she and I had similar sort of backgrounds and we were reading a lot of like John Cheever and John Updike and stuff like, because that's, you know, that's what's rolling around in your parents' living room, right? Like, I think there was a copy of Speak Memory and there was a lot of, like, you know, Michener. You get your hands on what you get your hands on and where you go from there is is kind of up to you. But, you know, having that moment where it's like, oh, yeah, you did that too, right? And when I think of, re- and I mean, I love her novels. I really love her novels, but, you know, the idea of young Ruth reading the same stuff I was reading and thinking, huh, huh, okay, I guess this is the world, you know, and to see this much larger world now and being able to connect like like I said I've been to Houston a couple of times I would like to see your Houston at some point <laughs> but to be able to connect right like reading is an act of connection it's a it's a way of finding that moment and like my eyes are getting big just thinking about this but you know to be able to find that thing that makes you remember that someone else is a person and that, like, I had so many moments reading Family Meal where I was like, yep, I survived my 20. <laughs> oh, good. Glad those are done. <laughs> not sure how I survived, but okay. But having that sort of shared experience, that shared humanity, even if the details, right, even if the surface details might be a little different. I'm not sure I would make it working in a bakery, but do I love working in a bookstore? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> But like I've never done food or worked in a bar, or worked in a bakery, or anything like that, because there's a sort of precision with all of those things that uh, maybe I don't necessarily live my life in that kind of way, right? Like, my dude can bake because he can read a recipe and pay attention, and I can cook because you can reverse engineer things, and if you make a mistake, it is easily fixed. Whereas with baking, if you make a mistake, maybe not so much. Like, you're a little more stuck there's a sense of comfort obviously that comes from food and it's not just food obviously in the in the books but the fact that all of your characters do find their way it's not necessarily a pat answer but everyone does find their way we just may not Uh, see it quite the way they do right (laughs) it might be a little more obvious for some than uh for others did writing family meal change you That's an
1: interesting question because the answer is yes, right? Explicitly and implicitly. You know, to harken back to an earlier answer, I don't know very many people that have not changed in some capacity over the course of the last few years in fundamental ways, like ways that are inextricable (laughs) you know not only from their being but their interactions with the world to lay it into more concrete terms perhaps one way of talking through it is that i began a version of family meal at the very beginning of 2020 like oh wow of that in Mind and I'd okay. gotten about ten thousand words n that I was comfortable with and that I thought made emotional sense that made structural sense. Okay, and in the fall of that year, so much change had occurred not only for me but in. The world around all of us, many of the rules that quite a lot of people may have thought were Mm -hmm. static and unbending rules revealed themselves not to be rules at all. Many of the structures or many of the ways of being that were thought to have been implied or implicit and necessary revealed themselves not. To be any of those things at all and reveal themselves Mm. to some people, right? There are other folks who you know knew these things by way of lived experience, by way of just the ways in which they moved through the world. And I think that a change that I navigated in the midst of writing the book Mm -hmm. was being or becoming someone who was more open to messiness and possibility, which isn't to say that there wasn't a fair amount of mess in my life prior to that. Like that is not what I need to, you know, to offer to the world in this podcast. But I think that the question of oh, like there are so many possibilities. You know, like oh, like there are many different ways that a person is or can be oh, I can change my mind about this, or, oh, this relationship doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to look yeah. this way. Like, it really doesn't. As you change, as we change how we move through the world, that can change, too. Like, oh, you can do that? These are questions that I was asking in the immediate term alongside you know millions of other folks, presumably. Mm-hmm and they altered not only the literal arc of the book but also the emotional arc yeah. of the book and it was only after one that you know i recognized that these are questions that needed my attention in my own life to say nothing yeah. of the narrative in and of itself that i was able to return to the project mm-hmm. with the sense that uh, oh okay this is actually honest right in initial drafts like not really thinking of like is this good or like is this bad at those initial stages but like oh like I can see the world as I've experienced mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. The folks around me and the communities that I care for whether they're shared or parallel to mine right like oh this is something that feels as if though you know, it is honest in that way. And I think that that is the point where I thought, oh, okay, like this, I see what this could look like and I see what I want it to look like. And I know what I would like to at least try to attempt with the story and with uh, these characters.
0: Yeah, you did more than attempt. We got all of the things in this. I really, I love Family Mail. I cannot wait For readers to meet cam and tj and everyone else and little shout out again to brie she's great
1: (laughs) i'm glad that you you mentioned her and that you know you're giving love to her because she was a really important character to me to try to give her the arc that she ultimately has
0: and you did and it paid off and she the whole thing i just i'm so so excited for readers to dive in to family meal and not leave I'm telling you you are not going to be able to put it down even when stuff gets tricky and complicated uh, I still wanted to know what happened next so Brian Washington thank you so much for joining us on Port Over and hey if you haven't read Memorial if you haven't read Lot go back and find those two because they are amazing Brian thank you
1: oh god thank you so much for having me but this is like a, this is like a joy and so so great you yeah. know
0: I'm Iwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Port Over, and I've really been looking forward to this show. Curtis Chin is a documentary filmmaker. He's also one of the founders of the Asian American Writers Workshop, which, if you know the AAWW, they are a fabulous resource. If you don't know them, you should know them. And now he's written a memoir called Everything I Learned, I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant because Curtis grew up in Detroit. And I want to start with Detroit because, you know, Detroit. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I mean, I've been so looking forward to this uh, interview as well. Um, yeah, Detroit, one of the great American cities, is so iconic, not just, you know, during its heydays, but also its decline. And growing up there, you know, it was the best childhood for me, even though this was the 80s. And I always talk about this, how like, you know, the auto industry was dying at that time, crack was coming about, AIDS, you know, was about to hit the city. I personally knew five people murdered by the time I was 18 years old. But at the same time, we had this fabulous Chinese restaurant, which, you know, my family was there. We had great Chinese food. I just loved my childhood. And, um, you know, I think that sometimes Detroit gets a bad rap. And so definitely one of the things I wanted to do with this book was show a different side of it, is that, yes, we did have a lot of um, difficulties uh, in that era and continue to have difficulties. But at the same time, it's still a great American city.
0: It yeah. is. I spent a couple of years in Chicago. I grew up on the East Coast, and I spent a lot of time in Los Angeles now, but uh, I spent a couple of years in Chicago. And the Midwest is a very different place. It is yep. very, like, I spent all of my childhood sort of running back and forth between Boston, New York, and D.C. Yeah, Chicago was an eye-opener for me. So whenever I get to talk to someone who grew up in the Midwest, I'm kind of fascinated.
2: <laughs> We're weird creatures. You know, it's really interesting because, um, you know, oftentimes you're asked to to define who you are, like what kind of writer are you, right? Like a writer, an Asian writer, whatever. And to me, a large degree, I think of myself more as a Midwestern writer.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that for a second, because I know you've been sort of floating around this idea for a bit. And I think that's really important.
2: You know, oftentimes when you think of the Asian American experience, you think of the West Coast or the East Coast or Hawaii, you don't really think of these flyover states. And you know, for my family, which has been there since the late 1800s, right? I mean, I jokingly say that, you know, my grand, my great, great grandfather had gone from Canton, China, to Canton, Ohio, you know, before realizing there weren't Chinese people there. And then moving up to Detroit. Now, Detroit, in the late 1800s, there wasn't even a Ford Motor Company, let alone Motown Music. And I keep thinking like, wow, that was, it was still a pretty French city at that time. You know, there were very few black people. What was that would have been like for, you know, them as they came here and as they saw the great migration come in, as they went through the Depression, you know what I mean? And all these historical things. And so um, yeah, I just like to remind people that, you know, there have been Asian Americans in this country, all parts of this country for many, many years.
0: You know, when you say your family's been here for 100 years, um, it does make me think of Ava Chin's Mott Street. Her family similarly has been here for, you know, a hundred plus years and same thing. And yeah, people forget all the time that America has been a thing. And yeah, okay. It took us a minute to get organized. And also, you know, my family, my mom came to the States in the sixties and my dad has always been here. His family's always been here. Yeah. So our experience is slightly different. I, I really, I so appreciate families like yours where you've got this like really long Because I'm still like, technically, I'm still first gen on one side of my family, you know, and um, having those connections is just kind of a beautiful, gorgeous thing. I'm also thinking of the Family Chow, that novel by Lan Samantha Chang, Mm. uh, similarly set in a Chinese restaurant, um, only in Wisconsin instead.
2: Like I think about my, you know, the fact that my mom's grandparents are buried here in America. You know what I mean? I mean, that's just kind of cool that, you know, that that's where our roots are. They're that deep.
0: Okay, all of your siblings have names that begin with C, which I kind of love. But at the same time, like in our house, probably we would all just get called by the wrong name. And there were only two of us.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But other Asian families did that too. Like my husband is Korean. and Right,
0: they did it? Oh, I had no idea. No, we were just, so my brother actually has an Anglo first name because my parents were like, yeah, you know, Japanese men's names. (laughs) Probably <laughs> a little harder to spell in the U.S. And I'm like, okay. Oh,
2: really? Oh, there's so many. It, was, it, it, um, it. In.
0: it was also a really long time ago in Massachusetts. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think the world has changed a little bit. Okay. I do want to talk about your parents, though, because your mom and dad got married when they were very young. Hmm. They went from mainland China to Hong Kong, which at the time is a really big leap, right? Like this is in the 60s that your parents are doing this. And you've got other family that's already here, right? Well, my dad was here.
2: My mom is the one that- Oh, it's your mom's family.
0: I'm so sorry. Yeah, my bad.
2: She escaped mainland, horrific circumstances, because her family had already been in the United States. Like similarly, both sides had been here in the late 1800s. But because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, oftentimes it was just the men over here. And they would send back money to China. And my mom's case, her side of the family decided to stay because, you know, they had a very nice house house there. They were now moving up the social ladder there. So they stayed there. The women stayed there, you know, but the men were here on my dad's side of the family. They came over uh, completely. And so my dad was born here. So in some ways, people might even say I'm a f- 1.5 generation or two. Or, or, yeah, or,
0: or, I get, I, yeah. I just, how do you say that when your family's been here for a hundred years?
2: I, that's why I don't use that term. I actually, yeah. You just say, my family's been here since the late 1800s, because I think for Asian Americans, we did not have the privilege of bringing our families over to start that count, right? Um, And so therefore, it's more important for me to establish how long we've been here. So I say, I I think it's a more accurate, uh, you know, representation of my family's experience in America to say how long we've been here.
0: that's one of the things I really love about Mm -hmm. the way you tell your story. You guys, at one point, though, go to the suburbs. It's a little messy, but you've got grandparents living with you and cousins. I mean, like, you're doing the thing you become first and only in your classroom. It is the experience that it is.
2: Yeah. I mean, we moved from a more diverse uh, school to one that was probably 95, if not more, 97% Mm -hmm. white, you know, and so you have to develop these skills, right, to, to fit in. Thankfully, I was able to do it because I grew up in this Chinese restaurant, one of the things that uh, people often ask me, given the title of my book, so what did you learn from a Chinese restaurant? And I say, the first thing I learned was parents oftentimes tell their kids, don't talk to strangers. My parents told me the exact opposite. They said, talk to strangers. Talk to yeah, and who they were talking about were the customers sitting in our dining room because my mom didn't graduate high school and my dad went to community college for maybe two semesters. They didn't know what life was like outside of that, those four walls, like in terms of opportunities for us. But anytime someone came into our restaurant who had a really cool job, my dad would call all six of us kids to run over and barrage these customers with questions like, "Well, how did you get your job? How much money do you make? You know, do you like your work?" Uh, And because of that, I grew up very comfortable, you know, talking with people who were different than me, and that's why I love meeting people. And so going to the suburbs, even though it was different, I felt equipped enough the challenge, right? Even though there, there, you know, I was facing discrimination. You know, like kids calling you names and stuff like that. I figured out a way to, to uh, you know, sort of succeed. Um, and, you know, like I said in the book, you know, becoming class president, president of the National Honor Society, fulfilling the model minority myth in a lot of right. ways. But, yeah.
0: Yeah. You and I were, I think, probably around the same age when that Time magazine cover came out, the one that you talk <laughs> about in the book. And I still like it makes me itch. I still just <laughs> thinking about that cover makes me itch. I'm like, great. Now someone's going to expect me to learn how to do math. Or like physics or something. I was the kid who was doing like all of the APs and the humanities. Like, can I just go deal with words and story? And can you please just leave me alone? And I just remember having nothing but dread in my stomach when that (laughs) came out. I was like, oh man, this is, none of this is good.
2: I mean, it's bad enough. Your parents are probably pressuring you, right? Like,
0: I had a, yeah, I had it. I have to admit my parents were a little more quiet. About mm. that, it was just clear that there was an expectation, and that you know you would just meet the expectation. Let's put it this way: my brother was good at music, so he took music lessons. But mm. then everyone realized I had no musical talent, and I was released from having to do any kind of no piano, musical thing. no, no. So I just went and did my own thing, and um, it was quite much better for everyone because yeah. I can't carry a tune to save my life. But I do. Your parents are really vivid on the page. Your grandma is a little unforgettable.
2: I can share a story about my grandmother. Yeah, I
0: would like to hear more stories about your grandma because she's slightly terrifying.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, there's this whole question of like, how do you write about family, right? Yeah. And um, I resigned myself that I was just going to be as honest as I could to my own memory, right? Good Mm -hmm. or bad. And so as you say, my grandmother was quite a terror. I mean, because she was growing up. And I don't even Mm -hmm. the worst of it. Earlier this spring, I was out um, you know, doing some pre-readings for the book, right? Because yes. I'm trying to form up support. And I was in Texas, Austin, Texas. And organizers get to the restaurant early and they say, hey, can you, can you meet us early? I'm saying, oh, yeah, sure. So I go downstairs to the street and I wait for my Uber. And there's this old Chinese lady standing on the street corner. And she turns around and she sees my sweatshirt and it says Detroit versus everybody. And she asks me, oh, are you from Detroit? And I go, yeah. And she, we start having this conversation. And it turns out that her mom was best friends with my grandmother. And she's like oh, wow. all these stories about my grandmother saying she was such a nice woman. She taught us how to drink American coffee. She always kept candy in her pocket and all stuff like that. And, you know, I'm looking at my clock wondering, where's this Uber? <laughs> you know I mean? And eventually I just said, look, I totally accept the fact that you have these great, wonderful memories about my grandma. But I don't. I mean, she just she was nice to plenty of people, just not to me. And, uh, you know, I quickly got in the car and left soon after that. But then a few days later, I realized that, you know what, maybe that was an emissary uh, from my grandmother from the grave telling me, you know, like I had misrepresented her that, you know, I'm being unfair to her. So if you're going to write about your family, write what you feel, you know, because whether you like it or not, even if they're dead, they're going to come out of the grave (laughs) and tell you, you know, that uh, you got them wrong. So, yeah, Yeah,
0: there's that. (laughs) What are your siblings? think of the book.
2: Nobody's read it yet. Only a sister-in-law has read it.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. I
2: I. I don't know.
0: <laughs> I, listen, that's fair. And I mean, I'm always more curious about this sibling relationship than I am about the parent child because siblings can just be so wildly divergent. You grew up in the same family, but you have wildly different memories of stuff. And I'm always kind of fascinated. It's like a mini sociological experiment, only it's in your living room.
2: And you become completely different people. When I announced this uh, book sale to my family, you know, on a Zoom session immediately after, uh, one of my siblings texted me right away and said, "You made me the villain in the book, didn't you?"
0: Oh, wow. Okay,
2: that's hardcore. Well, I thought to myself, "This is exactly why I would make you the villain." Because whenever I happy news, you always have to turn it into something against you. It's it's. Um... We talked about it since, and I have reconciled. And I said, "Look, it's my book. I'm the hero." <laughs> I'm the one that has the journey. I'm the one that grows and learns. I don't think I present myself as a perfect person either.
0: Oh, you definitely don't. That's one of the things I appreciate because, I mean, I was not expecting you to say, well, I'm a baby Alex P. Keaton from Family Ties, only I'm Chinese American. Like, you were a baby Republican, which is totally, you know, it makes perfect sense for where you were growing up and everything else. But I wasn't expecting that at all and watching that sort of pathway from you being i'm going to assume you were not wearing bow ties i could be wrong but i'm gonna assume sorry oh you were that's adorable sorry. that's adorable okay so you had your thing but you're you know high achieving in class and you're class president and you're doing all of these things and you're also working in the restaurant mm-hmm. let's not leave that out so you're doing all of this stuff And trying to figure out sort of who you are and where you fit into things. And then we have Vincent Chin and the murder of Vincent Chin. How do you process all of the stuff that you're trying to do as this member of the model minority, right? Which is a phrase we didn't even choose for ourselves, right? Like it was applied to us. You're essentially doing it though. I mean, you're rocking your life and everything else, but Vincent Chin.
2: I think that part of the reason why I was Republican is because one of the accusations against Asian Americans back then, more so, maybe still today was that we're not very loyal Americans, right? That we we have divided, you know, allegiances and things like that. And, you know, I was gonna prove otherwise. I was gonna was gonna out American my fellow Americans and basically wrap myself around this patriotism. Um and so it was a cover and it did work in that area because the area that we eventually moved to was a middle class, upper middle class neighborhood, um, you know, and very Republican at that time. I mean, it has since shifted, interestingly, but, you know, back then it was definitely a a Republican stronghold. And I fit right in that way. Um, And then, as you mentioned, the Vincent Chin murder, for those people who don't know, it was a a vicious hate crime against a Chinese American whose killers thought he was Japanese American. Mm -hmm. And they kill him with a baseball bat. And sadly, the uh, judge only fined them $3,000. They never served a single day in jail. And it was a pivotal moment for me in my life because... Up until that point, I really thought I would just carry on the family business. You know, I, I would be a Chinese waiter for the rest of my life because it wasn't a bad gig. I mean, you know, my family was there. I had all the free food I wanted. I mean, it was a very popular restaurant. I think that one of the reasons why, and this gets into why, you know, it was so important for me to, to find other writers to start a group like the Asian American Writers Workshop, was that, um, you know, when Vincent was uh, attacked, we found out the very next morning because, you know, Michael was his best man. Um, and so I checked the papers, trying to find out like what were they saying about it, you know. But nobody reported on it. Nobody reported on it for twelve days, right? Even when he was in the hospital, even when he died, no one wrote anything about it. So then one story appears. Okay, it was a good story, granted. Um, but then after that story, another ten months go by for another story, and I honestly believe that, you know, if if more had been known about Vincent or even just the Asian American community in general. I highly doubt that the judge would have given that type of sentence. You know, if people had seen us as people or as members of the Detroit community, I don't think the judge would have done that. And so that's why it's been so important for me throughout my life to to uh, think about ways to uh, increase opportunities for people to understand who we are and where we come from in all its complexities, you know, so.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I grew up outside of Boston and I don't remember when I first learned about Vincent Chen. Like, I don't remember not knowing about Vincent Chin. But going back and looking at the media coverage, there's no way Mm -hmm. I saw it. So I don't know who told me about it or when I like, but I honestly don't remember not knowing about his murder and Mm -hmm. and being really aware that the whole thing was just outrageous. But it's Mm -hmm. so weird because obviously we didn't have the internet the way we like, we did not have the kind of information we have now. And it's really interesting going back. And you did a documentary film um, mm-hmm. called Vincent Who? And going back and looking at there's an original documentary.
2: You need time to. For-
0: going back and looking at it all these years later is the weirdest kind of time travel. Mm-hmm. If you're Asian American, and I remember seeing it when it first came out, because mm-hmm. that's the beauty of living close to a college town—you <laughs> get <laughs> to see everything. But going back as an adult and yeah. And having decades between my original viewing and and seeing it now, and um, and then seeing it's not something you want to let go of, but it's also not easy to process even now, and especially coming out of sort of what we came out of during the peak of COVID, right, where there was suddenly another explosion of anti-Asian American violence, especially against old people. Like, what are you doing smacking an old person in the head? Like, what is wrong with you? But to see this kind of love in the community, right, and seeing people take that and do something with it instead, like, there's a lot of mutual aid that has come out in recent years that's been really terrific to see. Like, you've built communities around your films. You've done some very cool events. I mean, Dear Corky, Mm. that's such Mm. a great project. I was a little surprised though, when you delivered the memoir, because I didn't realize you had time. I mean, seriously, you've been doing so much. So when did you start actually working on the memoir? Like, when did you sit down and say, okay, I'm gonna finally do this? Because a lot of us have been walking around going, well, he's going to do it someday. And <laughs> then suddenly here it was. And it was kind of like, oh, okay. Oh.
2: Well, thank you for those compliments. But, um, you know, actually I sold it as a summer 2024 book and they they actually bumped it up after they got okay. my first one. So I actually okay. thought I would have more time to write the book. Oh, okay. But it's a good compliment. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. that that they really loved it, and you know, I had been working on it. The way I sort of think about it is I actually been working for a while. I've been working on a memoir for a while. About about ten years ago, um I started thinking that I should write one because um specifically my my siblings were having kids. And you know, after my dad passed away, you know, my family we all left Michigan, and uh, they moved out all to the Bay Area. And when they oh, started, even your
0: mom,
2: even my mom, because oh, okay. my parents were in a car accident, and sadly. Uh, you know, my um, mom couldn't continue, you know, I don't know. She couldn't a business. Yeah. And so um, my brother who's out there, Chris, who's a doctor, um, mm-hmm. you know, was in the best position to provide that care for her. And so she moved out there. You know, okay. I had to go back home and sell the family business, the restaurant, all that kind of stuff. That's wow. actually, you know, when I switched and, and made Vincent Who, because I was looking for a personal project. And then, you know, when they started having kids, it, it made me start thinking, maybe I should write some of these stories down because... You know, we had such a rich history of Michigan, you know, in our family, and these kids are not going to know anything about it. And so I started writing that memoir, and that took me a number of years. I did the typical thing of trying to find an agent, not having much success, get wonderful feedback saying they love the writing, they love the voice, they love the setting. They just didn't think they could sell it. And then what happened was COVID, right? Uh, shut down the country. You had George Floyd being murdered. You had the rise of reporting of anti Asian hate crimes. And from that, I sat back down and said, you know, maybe I, I need to reimagine what my memoir would be about or should be okay. about. And that's when it became much more about identity, you know, uh, the coming out process, the Vincent Chin story. Prior to it, that first memoir that I was working on was just crazy stories about my, my mean grandmother, my grandfather who ran the Chinese mafia, you know what I mean? Like uh, all just young kids stories. But, um, you know, after COVID and and the rise of anti-Asian hate. I upped the age to cover high school and college. You know, when you're a little bit older, a little bit more cognizant of things, but it's also a more difficult memoir to write. It's not as Mm -hmm. fun because you get into darker territories that you may not be ready or think that you need to sort of understand or or to reflect on. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know. So the version that you see is really the one that I started, you know, right around COVID. When I pitched it to those agents that that were close to signing me, but needed a little bit more, I immediately got multiple offers um, from there.
0: The stakes are higher. I mean, the the stakes are higher. And I do think it's easy sometimes for folks who are not part of the Asian American community to look and say, well, it's this monolith, right? And I'm like, um, actually,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: hi, there's all sorts of parts to this community. And, you know, sometimes they all work together and sometimes we kind of look at each other and go, I'm sorry, what? I mean, Mm -hmm. I really appreciate the fact that you really dig in on your coming out story. I mean, we don't get a lot of gay Asian American stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly Alexander Chi has done a lot of great work, but you guys can't be the only ones in the room holding (laughs) up the roof, right? But- I think it's important. I do. Like, I think it's important for younger people to be able to see that it is possible, you know, yeah. to have the life that you want to have wherever you might be. And sometimes I think that feels a little daunting, especially yeah. where, you know, the point we're at now in our culture and our society. And um, you do not leave anything out. Let's put it... <laughs> <laughs> I think you're really honest. And I think you might have been a handful in your 20s. <laughs> I think we were all handfuls in our 20s. You're really honest, and I appreciate that as a reader, but was there anything you went back later and thought, oh, God, why did I put that in?
2: I don't know, because I haven't thought about that yet. I'm sure there might be some stuff, but I also felt like if I'm going to be writing a memoir, I need to be honest. I think that part of the other reason why it might have been okay for me to write this stuff was because I feel like I'm a different person. You know, that was 30 odd years ago. I feel like hopefully I've changed. Like even the stuff about being this this uh right wing Republican, you know what I mean? Was not a very nice guy in high school. I mean, I can look back on it and laugh on it a little bit. Um I will say that uh yesterday I actually had this really, really wonderful opportunity. I was invited by this group here in Southern California called AAPIP Flag. It's parents and lesbians, gays, specifically, it's the only official chapter, right? Which is specifically Asian American. And it was so wonderful. Um to be in that room with all those people, and I deliberately chose this story about my mom, you know, uh, because I felt like uh, I wanted these parents of gay kids to, um, rec- to 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 know that we think about them. You know, we we are going through these tough struggles ourselves as we're trying to come out, but we're not cogn- we're not ignorant of the fact that they are also struggling too you know, that that this is something that affects our whole family. And I feel like maybe that's something that's unique about the Asian American experience is that I don't know if it's stereotype or whatever, but I feel like we think about the impact of our individual decisions on the rest of our family a little bit more, right? Like in terms of the life choices that we make.
0: I think that's definitely true for some of our families. I Mm -hmm. might not be that <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, okay. I might be leading with my chin a little more than You're the someone, outlier. Yeah, I kind of am, but okay. I think I I do I think that's true for a great many people. I just I hesitate to hit us with or maybe podcasts.
2: immigrants? Yeah, you know?
0: immigrants definitely. Yeah. Immigrants without a doubt without yeah without a doubt.
2: Well, because you think about all the sacrifices that your parents make to come over to this country, right? And, and you know, um, I've definitely always, always thought about that, particularly because we had so many kids, and I knew money was tight for us, you know, and that's why I, I tried to grow up really fast and be independent and like pay my own way through college. I mean, I'm sure my parents would have found a way to help me pay for college, but I didn't want to ask them because I knew they had, you know, several other kids they were paying to right. college too. It just it just seemed like they were working so hard already that mm-hmm. if I could just ease their burden a little bit by paying my own, you know, tuition or room and board, it, it wasn't, you know.
0: Did all of you go to school in Michigan? All no. of the siblings? Oh, no.
2: Okay. One graduated from Univers- Loyola in Chicago and graduated from Yale. Uh, another one graduated from Boston University and the other are Michigan, yeah. It was quite expensive, those selfish ones who went out of state. <laughs> that's that's what I'm I was just thinking, actually. I'm just going to go th- stand over <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to the state school.
0: I have a little brother. I only have a little brother. So, okay. you know, it was, it was kind of a different experience for us. But I yeah. want to go back to the restaurant for a second because mm. part of me, Boston's Chinatown is like two blocks, mm. right? Like... You know, we had a Chinese restaurant that was a huge... When we were coming back from the airport, it was a huge treat or like, you know... Uh, and, and it was very American Chinese. You know what I'm mm, talking about. Yeah. All props. There is a Chinese restaurant in almost every town in America. You kind of love it. There's only so much sweet and sour chicken you can eat, right? <laughs> <laughs> when it's done a certain way. So, But I want to talk about your family's restaurant because there's also one dish that you learned to make mm. that I've never actually seen on a menu so I don't know if it's like your family's thing or what but I, we need to talk about the almond chicken
2: yeah it's a it's a great dish it's um people in Detroit like to claim is one of our own okay I, I, that's uh, why
0: I've never seen it because yeah. it sounds amazing
2: <laughs> but like, when we're in Detroit I will take you there it's okay. a very simple dish I mean if you're you know it's it's comfort food basically what it is it's a, a breaded a filet of white chicken, you know, um, deep fried, uh, served with a brown gravy with, with Asian sauces in that, and served with a bowl of white rice. Now, there's a light garnish of crushed almonds and maybe a few slivers of peapot and water chestnut, but it's a very simple dish. Every Chinese restaurant in Detroit area has it. But really, like you said, it, you know, a few scattered places I found it, but really, no, it's really a Detroit thing. You know, I was actually approached by America's Test Kitchen to do a, a episode uh-huh. of their podcast. Um about that. And so that's what I'm working on. And doing that, I actually came up with a theory because my grandmother used to say that we invented the dish. And I, I just, okay, whatever. Because we were the most popular Chinese restaurant. Right. Right. Like I always tell people, guess I'm going to ask people, how many egg rolls do you think we sold over the 60 years that we own the business? And I always tell them, we sold over 10 million egg rolls. It means you're a very popular restaurant. Right. Yeah. So when they say that, I was like, okay. And so this dish, in terms of researching how it came about, the theory that I'm sticking with is that, you know, in the late 50s, de- uh, the city of Detroit de- destroyed the old Chinatown, right? To make it for a freeway. At the same time, they destroyed this area called Black Bottom, you know, uh, Paradise Valley, where the African American culture was centered. And because of the destruction of those two neighborhoods, the two communities had to relocate and they found themselves in the Cass Corridor, another poor area of, of town. And when our restaurant relocated, they had to adapt the menu to have more dishes that were appealing to different communities. And a lot of the Blacks, you know, were from the South, you know, as part of the Great Migration. And in some ways, I make the case that this dish sort of came about as a, as a un- union of the two different communities now being side by side with each other. Because essentially, it's, it's fried chicken, you know, it's whole food.
0: Good Korean fried chicken, good Korean fried chicken. I mean, Japanese karaage, like when that's done well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's all great. Yeah. No. And it's a delicious dish that people would come in and order all the time. And it's just like, I really am surprised that it just never really took over. I mean, took off. I mean, maybe, uh, you know, maybe in a second, another life, I'll do that. (laughs) I will polarize it.
0: Yeah. It's wild to me too, the way people respond to Chinese food in the state. Like, it's very American Chinese here, unless, you know, you're at a specific kind of restaurant. And it's wild to me what, I've been really fortunate and I've been able to eat like Taiwanese quite a lot. And Taiwanese is sort of this hybrid of Japanese, Sichuan and Korean. Oh, really? Yeah, it's trippy. It's really trippy. But (laughs) my partner, when I took him to Taipei a number of years ago and we were eating, he was like, oh, oh, now I understand. (laughs) I'm like, it's kind of (laughs) mind-blowingly great. But, you know, he was raised on Chinese food in New Jersey.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: It's a totally different... Food experience, right? And I just part of me is very envious of you as a child being able to eat sort of across.
2: I just love it like the
0: whole dimension, right? Of American Chinese food. It's like we as a community, the stamp was put on it, right? Like the fact that you and I were just talking about almond chicken, and you're based in Los Angeles now. Like, have you even in Monterey Park, like, have you seen that on a menu? You haven't, and like, I certainly. Have not seen it on the East Coast either, so I'm kind of like, yeah, oh, so this many, is so many wonderful
2: dishes. Oh God, you're mm-hmm. making me think about like, God, if I could only, uh if I, only I could go back to that restaurant, like, and have a week and just eat all my favorite foods. I would be so happy. You know, obviously the restaurant's closed now, mm-hmm. but no, um, oh, yeah, no, uh, yeah, I just wish I could cook.
0: <laughs> well. It's also a little bit of that whole Proustian memory thing, right? Like taste mm. and smell. It's yeah. so crazy, powerful. Like, I mean, my mother used to fry smelts for us, mm. and I love i I like, I just, I love. Yeah. Have I tried doing it myself? I have not because frying things, I can't. Yeah. I was having yeah. this conversation with another writer who can actually cook, and I can't. Like, I'm so intimidated by frying things. I just, I need someone else to do it. <laughs> <laughs> like the combination yeah. of just mess and heat and everything else. I'm like, mm, I know my limits in the kitchen.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it's it's like you almost have to let go and not yeah. overthink it when cooking. Right, it's such an organic, natural process in some ways. Yeah, you well. really
0: can't cook though, because it sounds like from the book that you did learn a few things, and not just the almond chicken. But like, yeah, I learned it. I picked I'm not sure thing. I would describe you as not being able to cook. I'm sorry.
2: Okay. I, I'm not a I'm not necessarily a foodie. I can't do great things. But yeah, I can mm-hmm. follow instructions and you know, like if I'm in a baking contest, I can place pretty well. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm not totally terrible at it. But it but this was this is one of the revelations in the book was that when I was growing up in the Chinese restaurant, Chinese food was always about big family gatherings. It right. was always about like, you know, craziness at the table, people mm-hmm. like, you know, pulling at each other and stuff like that. And that's what I always thought food was, right? Um, But then when I went to college and I finally found myself oftentimes eating alone, you know, in your own apartment, you Mm -hmm. know, for a person of one, you understand that there's a different way to sort of respect food too, right? And I think once I realized that food wasn't just about pleasing a large group of people, because that Mm was my problem cooking is that I'd always try to like take into account what people like, everybody. And I tried to make a dish that was appealing to everybody, which ended up appealing to nobody.
0: How does it feel? After all of these years of sort of building community and being an activist, and I mean, all of these things are, par- story is part of it, right? Like, that's how we build community. That's how we get other people to, you know, start participating in new ways and all of this. But this is a really different way of telling your story. It's really intimate. It's really personal. <laughs> it's about to be in the world, Curtis. <laughs> How's it feel?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I get scared when you ask me questions that, like that way, because maybe I haven't thought about the full implications or how it might reverberate. Um, mm. You know, for me, like you said, community has always been so important to me, maybe yeah. because I loved our community so much back in Detroit, because we were such a small community. When I saw negative things happen to us, it really hurt me. Um, and so I really always wanted to make sure that our community was strong um, and could stand up for itself. And so I've always, you know, been really active in, in doing things like that. And that's always brought me so much joy. And, you know, like even with with co-founding the Writer's Workshop, you know, yeah. seeing so many writers come through the door and have success and to yeah. be able to like celebrate all of their books and everything. It's just, I don't know what we did back then to get things right, but it's just, it's just such a joy in life to be able to feel mm. like we're a part of that and to make these things happen for so many people. I just. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what else to say about that. It's just, it's just, I get so many people coming up to me saying like, oh, I went through the workshop at an early stage in my career. It helped me at this pivotal moment. And I just, you know, I was like, oh, wow. I'm, I'm so happy for them. Um, It's, it's weird now coming to my turn, right? Like 30 years after we co-founded the group, i Finally know. Know say, okay, now it's your turn to have a book, but you know, everything happens for a different reason. Um, And the mm-hmm. other thing too, is that, Because I've spent so many years, um, you know, helping community, um, I feel like so many people are coming and turning around and recognizing and offering to help me. So, for instance, the organizers of Stop AAPI Hate Mm -hmm. approached me and said, hey, we want to help support the launch of your book. We're going to throw an event for you in in Los Angeles. When does that happen, right? Like, you know, or like, you know, there's a group called the AAPI Civic Engagement Fund, a foundation that's um, Asian American nonprofits. Uh, doing advocacy work. They want to do a launch, a pre-kickoff launch the night before my book comes out for all their members. So it's going to be all these nonprofits around the, the US, do you know what I mean? Like members of it. And so, you know, th- that makes me feel really great um, because, you know, there's no way I, you can launch a book. And we talked about this a little bit before we got in the air is that it is so hard now to get people to come to readings and to mm. like generate excitement. But I'm hoping. You know, I've got a 30-40 city tour just in October and November alone, but so many of those um, readings have been adopted by local community groups right. and local organizers who are saying, no, we're going to bring out the community mm-hmm. for you. And so they're estimating as much as 100 or 200 people at these events. I don't know if that's true or not. I, 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 even if they had a fraction of those people, I'd be very happy, you
0: know. I think when you get to see readers connect with mm-hmm. books, regardless of where you are, or what the moment is, it's, it's always, I mean, I've been a bookseller for a really long time and it is just so good to see. Yeah. And if there's six people in the room or a hundred people in the room, it's just, it's so like, you can feel it, right? Like <laughs> yeah. zoom was a great thing. And, and we were all able to do stuff during lockdown that it was helpful. It was really helpful. But you know, when you're in a room and again, you've done this, you've, you've had, events for your films and whatnot, like when you're in the room, the energy is just
2: uh... Well, like I said, the event yesterday, I'm still thinking about it. I mean, I think about those, you know, it was interesting because there was about maybe 30 or 40 people in the room. Um, many of them were immigrant parents talking about the difficulties they had, like in terms of when their kids came out or or even more specifically when their kids decided to transition, you know. Um and how difficult that was for them, just being in community with them and feeling like um, hopefully presenting a positive role model to them, in some ways makes them feel better. Because I was there with my husband, you know, who I've been with for 29 years. And for them to see a stable queer Asian couple uh, sitting right next to them who has a book coming out that's being celebrated, hopefully uh, makes them feel good. And so, you know, uh, that felt really, really great. Wait, um, and you
0: and Jeff met in college, right? Like you have briefly, been, yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: But that's a cool. really—I mean,
2: yeah, yeah—in
0: yeah. the context of like you settled down relatively young, which you know, not everyone does. <laughs> I think it's adorable. I think it's yeah, great. Yeah, no, we
2: have a we have a nice meet cute story. You, we didn't immediately get it together right away, but you know, a few years after I moved off to New York.
0: Well, I was about to say you dropped in a really nice sort of hey, reader, guess what's going to happen? It's very cute. In a book two. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, book two, actually. I mean, why not? Because you talk about how Detroit raised you, but New York made you, and now you kind of live in Los Angeles. (laughs) Yeah. No, I don't think you can live in LA without having it impact. I mean, especially if you're Asian American, it just LA. Okay, I'm going to sound a little woo woo, but the energy is a little different, right?
2: Oh, definitely. I mean, when I was in New York, I was writing poetry, right? And It's a great city for that because you're riding the subway, you're listening to different sounds, you're smelling different things. Well, hey, you're literally sitting in the car listening to Ryan Seacrest. And so you're not going to be writing very many poems about that. And so that's when I partly switched uh, my genre to more TV and film. Yeah, it's been fun too. But at, at the heart of it, I still feel like I'm a poet because you learn so much about the foundation of writing, not just in language and sounds in terms of, you know, momentum, all this stuff is all, and I always say to everybody, regardless of what genre you want to write, even if you want to be a grant writer, take a poetry writing class, you know, it will help so much.
0: I actually keep a a really significant set of shelves of poetry at home, because sometimes when you've been reading, and I read a lot, like I can't even tell you how many books I read a year, Uh, but sometimes you just need to sit with a couple of poems or a collection of poetry, like just as sort of what's the in-between the sorbet kind of thing where you just need to kick around a new set of words and a new way of thinking about words. And well,
2: um, it strips it down to the essence yeah. of language is what it does for me. It yeah. reminds you, like, these are the building blocks of ideas, mm-hmm. you know? And so, yeah, I find it really, in a, you know, really incredibly helpful.
0: And it doesn't matter what kind of copy you write, you really should be reading your sentences out loud. I yeah. tell that, to the writers that we have in-house all the time where I'm just like, just read it out loud. Because if it sounds weird when you're speaking it, it's going to sound weird to someone reading it. So that's the fastest way to make a set of edits is to just read it out loud.
2: I do. I mumble it a bit to myself like when I'm reading because I can hear it. But um, so my copy editor at Little Brown actually wrote back uh, a a very nice note to me uh, reading my book. She said, please tell Mr. Chin this is a well-written, fascinating, eye-opening memoir. I enjoyed it very much. And people have said to me that, like, oh, I didn't get a note from my copy editor. <laughs> what is that about? And it just, it, it made me think, it made me really appreciate, because I edit like a poet in the sense of I, I was thinking about every single word choice. I was thinking about how the what was the last word in each sentence, how each paragraph flowed into the next paragraph.
0: If you have a chance when you get off the road, Sophia Sinclair's memoir, How to Say Babylon. Uh-huh. You she's also a poet. Um oh, Cannibal okay. came out in 2016. It's uh-huh. um part of the prize is to be published by the University of Nebraska. And mm. it's if you have a chance. The collection is made. She grew up in Jamaica and she teaches yeah. at Arizona now. She feels similarly yeah. um, as you do. And going from poetry to to memoir, she's like, well. They're inseparable to me, but at the same time, like you start with the poetry. And uh, yeah, it's yeah. really important. I think there are people who feel like poetry is really inaccessible or it's thanatopsis. And I'm like, no, you don't. I'm mm. <laughs> yeah. like, I get it. And we can do the serious classic stuff. Or, mm. you know, there's also Lucille Clifton. I, God, I could just run down the entire. <laughs> list, and then we could end up, Joy hardjo. we could end up doing a whole show, just you and I riffing on poetry. What's next, though, for you? I mean, now that you've put this book out into the world, I mean, you've been doing a little bit of food writing, which I think is great. I'm very excited to hear your episode of America's Test Kitchen pod. Well,
2: I jokingly said to my agents, so uh, this book is um, divided into three sections of eight stories each, because, you know, mm-hmm. that's Chinese 888.
0: Oh, um, I <laughs> I did not miss that part.
2: (laughs) I'm very superstitious. Uh, There are all kinds of little Easter eggs like that in the Mm -hmm. book. You know, Chinese culture. So there are 24 book uh, stories in this book. And I jokingly said to my agents, if this book does really well, maybe we can sell another book called Leftovers of all the books that stories that didn't make it in. I have like 20 stories that didn't make it in. You know what I mean? But, you know, then I thought like, well, maybe there's a second memoir of eight stories in New York, eight in L.A. working as a Hollywood Mm -hmm. writer, but then eight stories back in Detroit, you know, when my dad when my parents were in the car accident, my dad died, I actually had to go back and figure out whether I was going to sell the business. I would love to do that story. I I think that might be a little bit too emotionally hard for me to write that story.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: I feel like the, you know, the New York and LA stories might be a little bit easier, but the part about my dad and my, and selling the family business, I don't know that I I probably could write that book, but I think it'll take me a few years Yeah, because you have to process all that stuff. And, um, I think I'm still a few years away from actually mm-hmm. being able to um, understand that story and, and and its impact on me. Um, but beside that, I mean, we have had interest um, in turning this book into a series, a TV mm-hmm. series, um, obviously with the strike impacting it. But now that it looks like it's over, mm-hmm. um, maybe there might be some interest with that. Uh, and I've been writing a lot more articles, too, I mean, for different publications. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, not just some food writing, but also some more political writing with nonfiction pieces. Okay. Uh, I wrote a my article on Bon Appetit last year, got selected for best American food writing. Pieces I wrote for CNN. I, I wrote a piece for the Detroit Free Press recently. Um, and so that that's kind of fun for me, like these short pieces too. But I'm I'm in the enviable position of actually having opportunities where people are now approaching me and asking me to to write things. Um, so that's good. Making sure this book gets out in the world, I think, is my top priority right now because you know, oftentimes, I mean, if you're gonna spend so many years uh, working on writing the book. You don't want it to just disappear, right? Like after a little while. And a lot of times is there are lots of really wonderful books out there, well-written books, which just don't find the audience for whatever reason, right? Maybe there wasn't enough marketing put into it. Maybe there was something else going on that distracted people from it. So um, my goal is to make sure that the audience that I think would like this book can find this book, right? And to make sure that they know about it. Um, and so I'm going to do that at least for the next year. So, but, Yeah, um, that
0: sounds like a good plan. That sounds yeah. like a really
2: And good I'm starting one. to get interest even internationally. Like I already mm-hmm. did five talks on the book in Germany and the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Because they already heard about the book. And I've got invited by the U.S. consulate in Shanghai to go do a reading out there. I don't mind traveling internationally <laughs> if anybody wants to bring me out there.
0: Yeah. I think it all sounds like a very good set of plans. And, you know, two months on the road as a start isn't a bad idea. That would be a really good place to and Curtis, but I know there's one other thing, because you and I have been talking about this sort of in the background. You had a really specific reason for writing the memoir and wanting to publish it now. And I, I'd like to take us out on that note, if you're cool with that.
2: You know, it really distresses me that we live in a very divided country right now. We have these silos where we don't talk to each other. There's so much anger. And I felt like, you know, Chinese restaurants are potentially one of the few places where you can go in and see someone from a different background, racial, socioeconomic, religious, sexual orientation, whatever. And maybe if you just took the opportunity, because you're in that same space with someone, to start a conversation, you know, that maybe maybe that could give us an opportunity as a country to sort of come back together. I I don't want us to avoid these very important discussions that we're having right now, right? It's critical that we do it, but maybe there's a way that we can do it in an atmosphere that's a little bit more learning and a little bit more. you know, positive. And so the way I sort of brought this up as my book is like, you know, come for the egg girls, but stay for the talk on racism. You know what I mean? And I I feel like if a small way my book can sort of help give people a point of reference to have conversations, then I feel like I've I've done my small part in terms of being that patriotic American that I always want to be starting from high school.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And as a reader of your book, you've done that. So I'm really (laughs) looking forward to other readers discovering what you learned. In a Chinese restaurant. So the memoir is Everything I Learned I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant. Curtis Chin, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.